0: The reason my eyebrows raised <laughs> is this, this person who supposedly came to become Kate's private secretary is a man. I think Ooh. for the first time, Emily will correct me, she, she's had women it, all the way through, hasn't she? She
1: has. Hi, everyone. We're back for another episode of A Right Royal Podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest royal news and taking a deep dive into the so-called men in grey suits, the people behind the palace walls who pull all the strings. But do they? And what does it take to be the one giving royals advice? We're joined by veteran royal correspondent and author of the best-selling royal book, Courtiers, The Hidden Power Behind the Crown, Valentine Lowe, to talk all about it. But first of all, we're joined by the woman who pulls our strings. (laughs) Hello's royal editor, Emily Nash. Welcome. Hello. Hello.
2: If only I had that much control over you. You do, you do. (laughs) Nice to see you, Andrew. It's been a while. I know, and I look so tanned. You do. Are you Tan? liking it? We're not bitter at all. I
1: actually really missed you guys. I can't believe you recorded two episodes whilst I was gone. Well, a lot happened whilst uh, was, you were sunning yourself. Uh, it
3: was a stressful royal week, for sure, that week. It was indeed. It was indeed. But I mean, how was your
1: holiday? It was good. I still, you know, kept with the news. I wanted to know what was happening. And you will not believe who I bumped into all the way in St. Lucia in the Caribbean. Oh, well, you no. know, because I've told you. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, this is awkward. This is the first thing she said when she came back. Who? No, well, I was actually going through it. I told you guys who it was. It was James Middleton, his wife, and their adorable baby boy. Wow. So it was incredible. oh saw I, James Middleton. When did you see at, him? At the airport. Okay. Catching the same flight <gasps> as, you know, my family and I. And Stop. I actually thought at the beginning, surely not like I'm imagining things that was at the airport and we boarded together because obviously families get to go first so Mm -hmm. I was right behind him and I thought that's it I'm not going to see him again because obviously I fly economy and I thought he would fly business or first but no he flew economy he was two rows in front of me wow oh my god it was incredible that's amazing very hands on dad and just a very normal family. I love that you can go to the Caribbean and you still can't escape. Still, can't I can't get away. Royal
3: family. And I mean, let's talk about some things that have been happening this week. Let's then, talk, because a lot As much happening. as I love hearing about your amazing Caribbean holiday. I'll photo, show you lots of pictures later. With, full of royal encounters. <laughs> but yeah, lots going on. Emily, what can yeah. you tell us?
2: Well, never a dull moment. As we speak, there is a huge royal gathering at Windsor at St George's Chapel for a memorial service for the former Greek king Constantine. And we've just been looking through some pictures. I'm sure listeners will have seen them by the time this comes out. But we've got Queen Camilla leading the royal family, which is a first. This is a major sort of private but also semi-diplomatic moment. You've got the entire Greek royal family, as far as I can tell, but also the Spanish royals, Prince Alexander of Serbia, various others, and a huge turnout of members of our royal family. Interestingly, Prince William has had to pull out for personal reasons. We're told it's nothing serious. My understanding is it's nothing to do with the Princess of Wales, who's still doing well, still recovering from her operation. But, you know, I think it's fair to say that royal correspondents feeling a little bit jumpy yeah. at the moment. So I think that was news that people weren't expecting. Hopefully, Why? Well, it may be that by the time this... Uh, podcast episode comes out, we will have heard more. But certainly William has a busy end to the week planned. So we're looking forward to seeing him later in the week. He might address it? Well, he has been addressing things since we last spoke. He has made quite a bold statement for a member of the royal family about the ongoing crisis in Israel and Gaza. And this did attract a bit of criticism. It's such a contentious issue. And there are very strong feelings on both sides. But I think William managed to address it in a way that didn't side with anyone in particular and really expressed his feelings. And I've written about this for our Royal Club on Substack and again in the magazine this week. And I really feel that William is facing some of the same criticism his late mother Diana faced during her lifetime She spoke out about the scourge of landmines left behind after decades of war in various parts of the world. And at the time, she was hugely criticised by some politicians. They said that she didn't know what she was talking about and that she had no place saying any of this stuff, that it was too political for a member of the royal family. And she said at the time, I'm not a politician, I'm a humanitarian. And I really think that William was taking the same approach when he spoke out. He's called for an end to the fighting. He's called for more humanitarian aid to get through the borders. And these are things that no one can really argue with. Can
1: I ask, though, why now? Obviously, he's going through a very difficult personal time with his wife at home. I'm sure he is doing a lot with the kids and we're seeing less of him. Why now put out that statement?
2: Well, it's interesting. Well, to give this all a bit of context, he made the statement as he was arriving at the British Red Cross headquarters in central London, and he was going to hear more about the aid efforts to help people trapped within Gaza. And I think he understood very clearly that if he was going to make this visit, he needed to express his feelings in a way that reflected both sides of this conflict. It came under criticism because it was on the eve of a very significant vote in the Commons about whether or not to call for an immediate ceasefire. So, and that's why people leapt yeah. on it as being a political thing. But his visit to the British Red Cross had been due to take place last month. So it was postponed because of Kate's illness. Yeah. That timing would not have been as contentious had it gone ahead as planned. And it's also important to say, and by the time we we're on air, he will have also visited a synagogue in central London to talk about his concerns about the rise of anti-Semitism. So he's being very even-handed in this argument, and that's something that's absolutely vital for someone in his role. It's something he's always felt really strongly about since he visited the Middle East in 2018. He's followed the news really closely, but I'm told it's really him speaking out as a father, and most of us watching the news coming out of that part of the world, it's incredibly distressing to see people on both sides going through such horrendous suffering. So I'm told that that's what motivated him to speak out. The timing was a coincidence. And again, it just really reminded me of his mother yeah. back in Angola talking about the need to consider the human suffering yeah. going on away from the politics. I so, thought it was fascinating.
1: So it's fair to say that this wasn't just a statement that he just wrote last week. This has been sitting, waiting you know, for it to go out because, like you say, this visit was scheduled and he would have maybe probably planned it Last year, we know from all the podcast guests we've had how well planned all the engagements are. So this has been like a long time coming.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's fair to say that probably Kensington Palace are a bit more quick to react on some things like this than, say, the late Queen's office would have been where her diary was planned six months in advance. And I think certainly William, if he feels like he wants to say something or do something, he will make sure it happens. And, you know, sometimes... There's not as much notice given as yep. there might have been back in the day. But obviously, something he's been following very closely, he and the princess put out a statement just after the October 7th terror attacks in Israel, as did the king. And I know that William did see his father at Sandringham over the weekend before he made that first visit and deliver that statement. So I'm sure it's something that's been approved that they will have discussed. And yeah. as we will hear when we chat to Val later, these things have to go via government so this isn't a question of William just speaking out against the government or doing anything unconstitutional in any way but it's fair to say it has dominated the news headlines for a few days.
3: Going back to the gathering at Windsor Castle that's happening right now as we speak. What did you think about Camilla? Because obviously it's a, it's a very sombre occasion, but I think she looked really sad and...
2: Quite emotional. Yeah. You know, I don't know how close she may have been to the former king, but obviously he was he was close to the royal family in general. But you have to fancy that any member of the royal family, going back to St George's Chapel for memorial oh, service, oh, yeah. will unavoidably think back to the last time they were there for a family funeral, and that was that of the late Queen. So... Funerals, memorial services are obviously sombre times anyway. But it's fair to say that, you know, the Queen's got a lot going on at the moment. I think they're not afraid to show their more human side than previous generations. And obviously we've seen how tactile the King is going out hugging people. And I actually think that's kind of a conscious decision by the palace, by the men in grey suits, to allow that side to come through. Because I think they understand, you know, the King... People know so much about him. They know about his strengths and his weaknesses. There's no point trying to make him something that he's not. And I actually find it quite endearing. Can we just talk about how he released that video and those photos
1: of him looking at the get well soon cards and he actually said that some of them brought him to
2: tears and I thought that was such a rare confession. Just so sweet. Well it's rare for a monarch I'd say but it's not unusual for him. He's a very emotional man. He's a very sensitive man and I think we're really seeing that in a way that we might not have seen In the past, there seems to be much more of a willingness to share his vulnerabilities, I guess.
1: Now, we haven't seen him this past weekend. We're kind of used to seeing him, you know, walking up to church with Camilla or by himself with friends. Where is he right now?
2: Well, we know he's not going to be spending all his weekends at Sandringham. And he does have a lot of other homes (laughs) around the UK. (laughs) He's not sure of a place to stay. And look, whether that's a conscious decision for him to have a bit more time out of the spotlight I think it was interesting that his audience with the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was very public and that it may be that we don't see him for the next few weeks. And I think that's entirely understandable understandable, given everything that's going on. But, you know, that's not something I've heard officially yeah. It, if I had several houses, I would rotate. God, yeah, I would.
1: <laughs> and obviously, Camilla is with him when she's not busy with engagements, which she is. She is very, very busy.
2: She's very busy. I mean, it is incredible, really, if you look back twenty years ago at how she was perceived by the general public, and in fact by the late Queen herself, who I think was very fond of her but worried about the reputation of the institution, etc. To now see Queen Camilla. Heading up the family at such a big occasion as this memorial service is really quite striking. Yeah. But she's also got some fantastic celebrity guests at an event in Buckingham Palace, um, which we'll talk more about next time we speak.
1: Oh, exciting. I have noticed that they do have a lot of celebrity friends that they like to call upon for these engagements. That's new. The late Queen, you know, you did see her with celebs or aliasters or Hollywood stars at certain engagements like the Royal Variety performance or certain premieres, you know, some old James Bond films and things like that. Why are they so, you know, eager to go out with their celeb friends
2: now? Well, I think it's because in many cases they are genuine and long-held friendships and that is really a reflection of the king and queen's love of the arts. So the kind of people they've always surrounded themselves with are actors, performers, writers, authors. This is the world that fascinates them and that's why quite often you'll see Dame Judi Dench turning up to something with the Queen uh, Dame Joanna Lumley, Giles Brandreth who we've had on the podcast who's fantastic but a lot of other famous faces are kind of being drawn into their orbit now and I think that comes with the roles they now have some of it's through connections with the charities and the organisations they're working for but I think it's great and it's not just sort of your Oscar winners. They've also had some big influencers and younger stars coming through who are joining them on engagements. And I think that they really understand the need to stay relevant Mm. and also to connect with a newer audience. We've talked a bit about this in terms of William and Earthshot and how in each Earthshot Awards host city, they've picked sort of local talent, but also international talent. And it's about connecting with younger audiences that the royal family might not otherwise reach. You know, you've got a king and queen in their 70s. They've put in, certainly in the king's case, a hell of a shift over the years. But it doesn't mean that the younger generation appreciates that or understands. And bringing people on board really helped. I mean, one of the most fun engagements I covered with them last year was for the Elephant Family. It's a charity that was set up by the queen's late brother, Mark Shand. And they brought along Gemma Collins. Now, to our overseas listeners, you might not be aware of her work um but she's a reality tv star who has a no h- need to google huge <laughs> a huge social media following and she's an animal lover she's very into animal welfare and animal rights and she came along to this and was absolutely bowled over by meeting Charles and Camilla And chatting to them, and she turned out to be a huge fan. And so, if you think about, it was Camilla, babes. (laughs) It was great fun. It was it was great fun, but also great for that charity because they're now connecting with a huge audience who might otherwise not have ever come across them. So I can see the reasoning behind it.
1: Now let's see if they were having a dinner date, right? And each royal had to get a plus one, a celebrity plus one. Let's see who they would bring. So. William would bring Tom Cruise as his plus one Do you think obviously <laughs> yes who would Charles bring Jerry Halliwell he loves the Spice Girls he <laughs> oh, loves the yeah. Spice Girls the infamous bum pinching incident Camilla so. would have so many to choose from I think like she, she loves an author yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. An she d- and also,
2: yeah. or a theatrical dame, yes. I would say. She likes yes. a dame. Yeah. Who would Kate bring? A sports star. Uh, my oh, money would uh, be Andy on Murray. Ben Ainsley, Roger Federer, one of these guys. Oh, you're Roger yeah, Roger Fedra, Yes,
1: what a date night, yeah. Right. I mean, obviously, yeah. they'd invite us, and us, us. We would be there. Oh yeah. no,
3: yeah. I don't realize. <laughs> I don't know why we went at the top of the list
1: once before we even thought about doing this. <laughs> oh, that sounds incredible. No, I do love that they are bringing. Other people that are also as passionate as they are about their charities and causes. It makes a lot of
3: sense for the palace to have made that decision, which I think leads us to our oh, next yes. guest. Yes. He's going to be telling us all about the minds behind the royals, why they do and don't do things, the men in grey suits themselves. And we're going to be joined by an expert who can tell us all about it.
2: Shall we welcome him on board? Yes, I'm so excited. Valentine, Val, we are delighted to have you with us on The Right Roll Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome.
1: Welcome. Now,
2: I know we've got a lot to discuss, but the very first question I have for you is, can you tell us about your... Taylor Swift moment. I know this is something that, <laughs> that Emmy is going to really enjoy.
3: Wait, what? I was not expecting this. Uh, you
2: didn't know. A <laughs> no, Taylor know.
3: Swift moment?
0: My Taylor Swift moment, yes. It was very special. It was an event at Kensington Palace in the depths of winter. It was some kind of winter wonderland thing. It was for charity, obviously, and there was a sort of bit of a concert and Taylor Swift was going to perform. And there was a red carpet and I was there and Taylor Swift was going to come down and I was told that that I could have the first question and I didn't have a great deal of interest in Taylor Swift I certainly didn't have a first question lined up but oh goodness I better think of something so I thought of something and there I was in my coat and my scarf and my hat and all that. she came up and said uh I love your newsboy cap <laughs> I said what <laughs> anyway could we could we got over that one so she's very very friendly and nice and I asked my question and she said I'm, I'm sorry and uh I you know, rephrased my question and asked it again. It was, it was fairly banal. I think it was something about Prince George. Had she seen him? And she said, I'm sorry, I love your accent, but I can't understand a word you say.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that just pretty much sums up what it's like on the Royal Beat sometimes, doesn't it? You have these brushes with yeah. A-list celebrity and um, doesn't always go according to plan.
0: Yeah, and sure, some months later, or a year or so later, also at Kensington Palace, uh, met Joss Stone. And that wasn't red carpet, that was we were just hanging around. Before the event, and she came to chat to us. She's very friendly and nice. And then she turned to me and said that I reminded her of her geography teacher. <laughs> oh
2: my God. Oh. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that you've made an impression
0: over the years, Val. Didn't yes. the, uh,
2: the now Princess of Wales
0: once comment on you? We were on tour somewhere. I think it was the Solomon Islands. I can't remember. When you go on these foreign tours, Sometimes the royals will have a drink with you. It's, it's arranged by the press office. It's somewhere in a bar or room or whatever. And they're kind of faintly artificial occasions because you stand around little groups of sort of three or four or whatever, waiting for her or him or them both, whoever it is, to come and chat to you. And they're, they're brought to you and they chat to you for sort of five, ten minutes and then they move on. Kate came to talk to us and um, she said that she could always spot me in the crowd of Hacks because I was tall and I was often smiling.
3: <laughs>
0: Aww. <laughs> Aww. That's very nice. Which, mythology turned that into she liked me because I had a nice smile which is not
2: really what she said. But we like the mythology. I'm a big fan of about the particular legend. Now, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Fowl's work he's a very long-standing... Sorry? Well it that be possible? <laughs>
1: May, might They're not all as lucky person. as me. <laughs> to the one person listening. The one. Yeah, yeah to the <laughs> one
2: person know. somewhere out in the middle of the United States who's not heard of Val. We've brought you here today, Val, because we want to talk a bit about the power behind the crown. And as the author of the Sunday Times best selling book, Courtiers, we thought you'd be very well placed. So, can you tell us a bit about how palace machinery operates? Who is in charge? Who does what? What even is an a query? <laughs> If I ever find
0: out what a query is, I'll be
2: sure to tell you. <laughs> uh, take the last question for
0: the query. That's one of these kind of old-fashioned titles, and the palace is a lot about old-fashioned titles. It goes back to ancient courts, and the query was the person who looks after the horses. Those with language skills will know that. They don't look after the horses anymore, and it's a kind of glorified dog's body in a way. The query. Putting aside the question whether it's equerry or a query, I think if you're posh and you're in the palace, you say equerry. I noticed that's how you asked the question. I've
2: assimilated it. Yeah, it's assimilated <laughs> we've, we've as assimilated
0: assimilated so much over the years, haven't we? They're military and they're seconded from the armed forces. Sometimes they're retired, and they're there to organise the royals working diary, organized public engagements, uh, help with public engagements, or walkabouts are there to do demeaning things like you know, take the flowers or the teddy bears or whatever it is that the member of the Royal Family gets given by the passers-by. One former equerry who later went on to hire things, uh, Jamie Lowther Pinkerton, who was an equerry to the late Queen Mother, he described it as a cross between a companion and a very junior private secretary. Uh, which I think pretty much sums it up.
3: This is interesting. In my head, I was like, what's the difference between an equerry and a butler?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it seems very, very different, yes. Yeah,
3: very different. Okay, fine. Uh,
0: although I'm sure that occasions, Aquarius will pour the drinks. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, who runs the show? That's a really interesting question because particularly the, the private secretaries, they're the important ones. The private secretaries, they keep the show on the road. They're the machinery of the palace. So if you ask me what, what the private secretary of someone like the king does or the prince of wales it's all sorts they organize their public life engagements Um, they're their gatekeeper they determine who gets to see the member of the royal family they write speeches they advise they advise on policy and they're also a constant companion they're with them a lot of the time so if someone is being driven to an engagement you know the person in the back of the car with them is the private secretary so it's a lot of facetime it's a lot of communication which is in contrast to the communications person, so you know, who are also very important, particularly with say with the late Queen, the communications secretary would see her, I don't know, once a week or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to all day, several times a day. Mm-hmm. But there's the crucial question of who actually is running the show. Because the private secretary takes a lot of the day-to-day decisions, mm-hmm. but the big decisions uh, and the kind of direction of travel is taken by the sovereign. There's a kind of really interesting thing about to what extent the private secretary controls things. Because to an extent, they they do try to get their way. So when the private secretary thinks you know, something is the right thing for the monarchy, sometimes they actually need to persuade their royal. Because sometimes their royal is set on another path or doesn't see the virtue or the merit of doing something. And it's quite interesting. When I was writing my book, courtiers, the different techniques that the private sectors would use to get their royal to do the right thing. And it's not about having a full on row, because a full on row doesn't get you anywhere. Sometimes it's about explaining the consequences. Yes, sir, you could do that. But if you do that, this will happen, and then that will happen, and then blah, 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 down the line, almighty you row, know, or whatever, or you don't get your way, or whatever. But if you do this, and you know, they can be persuaded. Sometimes it's a question of recruiting allies. So you you might get someone else to say something else. You might, if it was the then Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, as he was then, it might be a question of talking to Camilla, getting her on board. It's about using subtle techniques to get your way.
2: So The art of persuasion. The art of persuasion. It sounds but, like me with my toddler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but there's no naughty step in the royal no,
1: no. <laughs> Should there be? <laughs>
3: because I don't get like how they know what the right move is. Like the royals don't know the right move, but these people do. Do you have training for that? Like where does that there's, come there's from?
0: There's no training. It's the craziest work environment ever. You're reliant on their their sense of what's right and wrong yeah. and what is in the long term their long term what is in the long term interest of the monarchy and of the country How
3: do you qualify? I can I apply? Like I've got a you good gut feeling about things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, How you would love work? to see you do you, that. You
0: can apply because they've changed who works there. Over the years, so much. So, if you go back to the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century, it was all poshos. It was the aristocracy. It was, you know, people pretty much from the royal's own class. Take a famous courtier like Tommy Lassells, who we saw in the crown famously. His cousin was married to Princess Mary, who was the sister of George VI and Edward VIII.
2: How did he possibly get that job?
0: <laughs> it was a familiar class to the royals you've got and then it's this, nepotism this going on here. started changing and you could see it happening at the beginning of the 1960s when they started getting people from the Commonwealth to work in the palace recruiting Australians and Canadians to come and work in the press office and, the, and then possibly even the, the private office later uh, so it started changing and there was a kind of famous attack on the royal family in the late 1950s by a chap called Lord Altringham, who wrote a magazine article and basically suggested the queen was surrounded by tweedy courtiers who were out of touch. And I think he wasn't wrong. They said to him privately afterwards that they thought he'd done the palace a great favor Mm. by pointing out how tweedy and out of touch they were. It all started changing. And then by the sort of, by the 90s, I guess, it was quite noticeable how much it had changed. I mean, there were two little anecdotes in my book, which I felt encapsulated this. One is that there was a chap called Ed Perkins who was... uh, Bright Good Welsh boy. boy. B- Welsh boy, bright chap, been to Cambridge, done a PhD, but pretty ordinary roots. He went to a comprehensive school in South Wales. He worked for Buckingham Palace, he worked for the Queen, and then he was applying for a job to go and work for William and Kate in Kensington Palace. And just before he joined KP as we like to call it. William asked him or asked him to be someone else, just want to check, Ed, you did go to comprehensive school, didn't you? And he said, yes, isn't it? Which was the right answer. That's what they <laughs> wanted, actually wanted. And um, also Kensington Palace, there was another chap called Miguel who joined as a press officer, became the press secretary and then became eventually William's private secretary. He was the son of a post office clerk. Incredibly smart, nice guy, great emotional intelligence, but very humble roots. He kind of encapsulated how things changed.
2: And do you think that was because the royal family realised they needed people to have a better reading of the room, if you like? A better yeah, understanding yeah re- reading of, of the country.
0: Yeah, You need to understand what goes on because the palace is there, the royal family is there to kind of represent the country, to unify them. And you can't do that if you've got this sort of rarefied, elite, snobbish, distanced institution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you feel that the people that still surround the king are still very old school, whilst the people that surround Prince William and his wife Catherine are more different.
0: I think to an extent that's true. I think there's quite a range of people that surround the king. He's got a woman called Ava Williams, Ava Omegomi, as she was, who's in charge of, I think they call it, community engagement. I mean, that is a sort of strong and conscious effort to make sure you're engaging with Britain's ethnic communities. But there are also posh, yeah, slightly out of touch people there as well. William is kind of interesting. Yes, he's made conscious efforts to expand the kind of reach of the people who work for him, but it's not always been the case. I mean, not many years ago, apart from the the top people there, I felt that the people who surrounded him were slightly sort of posh blonde girls with Alice bands. I said I did feel that was the case, and they said, yeah. You're right and it was aware of it it was you know a mistake we failed to correct at the time
1: Correct me if I'm wrong but when I think of King Charles and the people around him I feel like he doesn't make a lot of the decisions I feel like he's led by the and he he obviously trusts everyone around him and I feel like he's led by them but with William I get the feeling that he is pretty much the one that makes all the decisions uh,
0: I'm not sure I agree I mean Charles has been guilty I think in the past of being too eager to listen to people. But that's in the sense of outside influences. You know, his latest architectural guru or Lawrence van der Post or people, you know, so he he kind of listens to the people and he falls under their sway. Yeah, But in terms of the people who work for him, I don't think it's the question he's there. He's quite... Strong minded. He's quite a demanding boss, isn't he? He's a demanding boss. He knows his own mind. And, you know, as I might have suggested earlier, sometimes his staff do have to work quite hard to persuade him to undertake a course of action.
3: But sometimes it doesn't always work out for the best, does it? I mean, Charles has had his fair share of negative press. Mm. How much do you put your trust in others and not yourself? Or indeed, you know, was some things that went wrong in his past him demanding he was doing it and not listening to…
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a, a classic example of him not listening, which was in the 1980s. Do you remember the famous speech he made at the RIBA, Royal Institution of British Architects, uh, when he talked about a proposed extension to the National Gallery being a carbuncle. I don't. look forward to hearing about <laughs> <it>? <laughs> he, he attacked this, this, this proposed extension as being like a carbuncle on the face of a much-loved friend. And it caused an absolute furore that speech. And he made that speech and his private secretary, chap called Odeen, in the car on the way there was trying to dissuade him, uh, saying you can't say this. And they had an absolute humding of a row and Charles failed to persuade him and Odeen eventually left. Not just because of that, but that sort of thing was one of the factors. Wow. Uh, and, it, and, it, and he, he quit? Eventually, but not just over that, but that was one of many yeah, right. events and difficulties that led him to quitting. That touches on the kind of the, one of the fundamental things about the quality of a courtier. You've got to be in tune with your boss. Mm, right. You've got to have a similar worldview. You know, some of the successful ones have been like that. So, for instance, a chap called Richard Aylard, who was a former Royal Naval officer who worked for Charles. Aylard was very interested in, he had a degree in, Something like zoology or some sort of biological science, and he was very into environmentalism, mm. uh, And it worked very well with Charles, because that's what Charles was into at the time. And, and of course, still is. They were pushing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And then you look at someone else, senior army officer who was in charge of the household division for a while, called Airy. This is a similar time. And Airy had been brought in to instill some discipline into Charles's office. There was a feeling that the the office was a bit of a mess, a bit of a shambles. Airy was brought in to sort things out because the people thought some military discipline was the thing that was needed. But he was just totally lost in this kind of charity, environmental world. And there was the famous time when on a boat up the Amazon, there was a sort of environmental summit and they had all sorts of important people. Airy was there, but he just didn't have anything to do because he just he couldn't kind of talk to these people. I, mean, I think he was left pouring the drinks, um, <laughs> and he eventually was got rid of. It was heartbreaking. It was uh, at Highgrove, and there was some thing going on it was a meeting of some charitable body Alan Shepherd of Grand Met you know the big sort of drinks consortium was deputed to break the news so he took Airy for a walk around the garden and Airy came back from this walk looking absolutely crestfallen Aww. and then Diane down tripped downstairs and said brightly anyone fancy a drink? <laughs> <laughs> poor Airy I think he definitely needed a drink at that point
2: Aww, Oh dear oh, I, oh, I don't like that <laughs> It feels a bit like it's a bit like dating I guess they have to sort of they you have know, to I find a match. Kiss a few frogs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But and also they,
1: the interview process must be very interesting because you want someone that you think is
2: like you. But they also have to have a certain degree of knowledge about things and certainly you see quite a few former diplomats.
0: There's a strong element of the Foreign Office there because, you know, the monarchy and the government are closely entwined. You need to be able to negotiate... Those corridors of power, you need to talk the same language. And also, I think one of the factors why diplomats often uh, get recruited, I think it was certainly the case when the Queen was around, is that's who the Queen saw. Yeah. They're the people. So, for instance, you take someone like Robin Janvrin, another ex naval officer who joined the Foreign Office. The Queen came across him, I think, on a tour of India and was impressed. He was Mm -hmm. a very impressive individual and ended up being offered a job. David Manning, another incredibly impressive diplomat, was ambassador to the United States for a while, ended up being Tony Blair's foreign affairs advisor. The Queen herself recruited him to work for William and Harry. She thought uh, William Harry needed advisors, introduced them to the world of foreign affairs. She got her private secretary to approach Manning. It was her idea. That's
3: really uh, interesting.
2: Yeah. yeah. So they can sort of handpick people who they think will be good for the institution as yeah. well. Yeah.
3: I just can't imagine anyone telling the Queen what to do. I mean, who was that? And uh, I mean, did she respect that?
0: The Queen was quite good at listening to advice. But did she take it? She'd often tell people, go and talk to Philip. Oh, And Philip was quite a good person to talk to. There was an exchange of ideas and a thrashing out of an issue with Philip. Mm-hmm. And then if Philip was convinced... Then it could be easier to convince her. Oh,
3: my God. I'd much prefer to be the Queen's secretary than Philip's. Can <laughs> you imagine? That would have been the most terrifying job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, know, I think working for Philip was actually quite fun. He had a very relaxed office.
3: Did he have a bit of a temper, though? Why am I making that up?
0: Yeah, he could have a temper. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, think, I just cry. I think, I, I think, <laughs> once, once you're working for him, once you trusted him and he yeah. trusted you... I think it was kind of okay. I mean, there was various people stayed there for ages, including including post retirement. There was one chap who worked there called Brian McGrath who retired and then the next day was back in again. The way he, he put it, he, he went out the door then came back in through the French windows.
3: <laughs> well, that's nice. You know, when you know the staff turnover is very low, then yeah. that's a very good sign. I yeah. know
2: when the Duke of Edinburgh died, actually, I spoke to a few people who had worked in his office and they were absolutely devastated. They really loved their time working for him. and I think that really... Yeah, perhaps gives another side to the story that yeah. you, you sort of see this quite bluff character and assume that he's not particularly nice to staff and actually that wasn't the case at all. No, I think that's right. I'll um, take it back. Okay. Okay. Talking about the tension, should we say, between principals and their private secretaries, you open your book with a scene that was very familiar to me <laughs> about a flight from Tonga to Sydney. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So this was the tour by Duke and Duchess of Sussex
0: of Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and Tonga. And that was a very memorable tour, not least because it started with the announcement of Meghan's pregnancy. And there were all sorts of memorable things about that. Uh, So I remember she visited some people in Australia and she brought them banana bread, which she baked herself, which was definitely a royal first. Mm. When we got to Fiji, there was this long, and if I dare say rather tedious welcome ceremony. It rained, Uh, Val. It rained. It it was always raining, where Harry and Meghan sat on thrones on some stage. Well, this hour-long ceremony took place. And then a, a day or two later, we went to a different part of Fiji, and there was another welcome ceremony, which was even more boring. Harry was just glaring at the press. We were slightly to one side he was of the not stage. Happy and he day. just looked daggers at us for the entire thing. What, was, what did he do? Absolute grump. <laughs> uh, some, someone had written something, who knows what. But Meghan, she was kind of wonderful. She was such a pro. She sat bolt upright on her throne, smile permanently fixed to her face. She never dropped it for a moment. Absolute professional. Uh, it was kind of brilliant. And the contrast was so striking. So obviously he was in a bit of a mood on that tour. We were flying from Tonga back to Sydney. And often on these tours, there comes a point towards the end when the royal might come back to the back of the plane and have a chat with us off the record, you know, not for printing, but it's a way of making bonds. It's a way of keeping us sweet. It's a way of having some informal contacts. That's nice. uh, and we were promised that he or they would come to the back of the plane and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It was a four or five hour flight. When is this going to happen? And then we were buckling up for the descent and for the still aborted happened. landing, lest and, we
2: forget. Yes.
0: And we landed and it hadn't happened and only after we landed they came back to the back of the plane and harry was slightly in front of him, meg was slightly behind him and she didn't say much she did make some strange remark about us wanting to get back for our sunday lunch and it was completely bizarre but he is what he said that was memorable oh. he said thanks very much for coming even though you weren't invited oh. and we thought what
1: was there an awkward silence? We
0: were yes. also slightly looking sideways at us. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, because, A, it was incredibly rude.
1: Yeah.
0: And, B, it seemed it wasn't true because we very much were invited. And you know, a, a press release had come out from the press office saying, anyone who would like to come on this tour, what? please apply in the usual way. It was extraordinary. And a lot of people were very affronted by this. It was, really was rude.
2: I think it was at that point sort of 3 weeks into a trip as well so a lot of people had obviously left family at home and yeah
3: it was quite full on they had such great press from that trip as well yeah, right yeah. so I wonder what and
0: afterwards afterwards one of his senior aides conveyed the message to him that what he said had been rude. deemed to be rude and had gone down very very badly particularly all of us who, as Emily says, we'd left families behind, we'd travel around the world to cover this tour. And he said to this person, well, you shouldn't have made me do it.
1: Oh, Which,
3: my God.
0: I mean, it really is sort of Kevin the teenager, isn't it? Also, shines a bit of a light on the relationship between the people who work for the royal family and the royals themselves. They can perceive themselves as having been made to do something. Another really famous example of this, if we go back to Charles and the Charles and Diana days, do you remember there was a documentary by Jonathan Dimbleby mm. in which Charles confessed to adultery. He didn't say with whom. He did say something like he was asked whether he remained faithful and he basically admitted no, but only after the marriage had irretrievably broken down. Mm. Afterwards, his press person did, confirmed that he was referring to Mrs. Parker Bells. So it caused a huge flurry, that admission of adultery. And uh, some time later, weeks, months later, Charles was at some dinner party with, I think, Richard Aylard, his private secretary was also there. People, I think, at this dinner party were expressing the view that it was a mistake to have admitted adultery. And Charles pointed a sort of angry finger at Aylard and said, he made me do it. Oh, uh.
2: that also sounds like my children sometimes. Literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whilst we're talking about Tonga, there
1: was something that happened in Tonga. I don't know if, if we ever knew or we will ever know what happened when Megan was at a market. Oh, that was in Fiji. We, oh, that was in Fiji.
2: We do know. We it's do, oh, do, 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 do know what
0: happened because I, rebe-
2: I Andrea, revealed it. Oh my God! I'm so sorry. I know what ha- even
1: I know what, what happened. happened me? Let Val tell you. It's in his book. Okay, tell me, tell me.
0: So she was due to be at this market. Yeah. And these things are strictly timetabled. You know, you're there for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is. And basically halfway through, she signaled to her staff she needed to get out. So they got her out, and it was very chaotic. And I think quite significantly, she left in a car without one of her senior aides. I think it was a bit of a sign that the senior aide was in trouble. And the press office afterwards came out with all sorts of reasons why this happened. They said it was security. And then they backed down from that and said it wasn't security. They basically changed their story. And it just kind of remained a bit of a mystery. There wasn't a coherent explanation. And then I found out years later, the market event was to do with some UN women's organization which Megan had had some dealing before, and for some reason she didn't like this organisation and she didn't want to have anything to do with it and she didn't like the fact that their branding was all over it. That is one of the main reasons why she pulled out of it. I mean, there may have been other factors, but I have seen a WhatsApp message <gasps> from one of the people who had responsibility for getting her out of the market. Yeah. And they sent an apologetic message to a close aide to uh, Megan the next day saying, sorry about the chaos yesterday. It was for various reasons, but mainly UN women. I've seen this message. So, yeah. Oh. Uh, and still, still, for this day, still to this day, I don't know what she had against them. Why they'd fallen out, but...
1: And why she realised so late
2: that they were involved.
0: She knew they were involved, but I think she hoped or thought or believed that it wasn't going to be so obviously about them, that their branding wasn't going to be all over it.
2: In the interest of balance, Harry and Meghan have talked about the so-called men in grey suits, haven't they? And they've made very clear their discontent with the way they see the institution as having treated them. Do you think there's much merit in the claims? There's a lot to say
0: here. One of the things I'd say is that it's important to realise that Harry was kind of unhappy before Meghan came along. Mm. So it's not just all about Meghan. And, you know, we learn a lot of this in spare. Yes. But... We also knew it before, because I wrote about it in my book.
3: I think it's very important to say, actually, cause yeah. I think Meghan yeah, he, gets so much flack.
0: Yeah, for... I, it is. It, no, it really is important to say. And he was particularly aggrieved about the relationship with the media. And that's one of the things he wanted to change. The other thing is the the men in grey suits, they're the kind of visible face of the enemy. Mm. Much more so than the actual individual members of the royal family. So if things aren't going well, if you're not liking it, the way things are run, the manifestation of that is the courtiers mm-hmm. rather than the other royals because you don't have so much to do with them you don't actually speak to them so much but you're dealing with the men in grey suits all the time megan certainly those who worked for her tell me that it's almost like she was setting it up to fail from the moment she first appeared She was saying things like, you're not going to help me. I know how this works. I'm just the girlfriend, just before they got married. She was casting them in the role of people who wouldn't be helpful, wouldn't see things her way. She saw quite a few of them as against her from the beginning. The one place, one area where the palace really failed, I think, was failing to realize there was a problem Mm. early enough. So, you know... It all reached a climax in December, January 2020, if I got the right year, mm. when they said they were going. And a lot of people have concentrated the debate on you know, how the palace handled it, on what happened then. And I think that's a big mistake. I think it's actually the previous 12 months that are important. I'm not sure that it would change the outcome. I think they probably still would have left anyway but it changed the tone of the outcome. Mm-hmm. For the palace to start intervening then, started addressing what's wrong, why are you unhappy, how can we make things better, it still might have ended up with them leaving, but it would have been an amicable divorce, mm-hmm. not the bitter and fractious one that we saw. Yeah. Having said all that, I mean, I think there are plenty of areas where Harry and Meghan get it wrong. I think when they accuse the palace of briefing against them, I just don't think that happened. Yeah. Which is it's not to say there weren't occasional leaks, and some of the leaks might have been malicious designed to undermine them, but there was occasional leaks. It really was not coherent strategy of briefing against them. You know, the number of times I rang up the palace and tried to get them to say something on, on a particular subject to do with them, and they just wouldn't say anything. They were not being briefed against, not on a sort of systematic basis.
3: I've got to ask as well, you know what you're saying about how there wasn't a systematic telling the press certain things, but there was, like you said, some malicious leaks, like the fallout with Kate and Megan over the Blower Girl dresses. What is that all about? Because it's like, surely someone must have ticked off that that got leaked. And then that's, I don't know, I guess that's a basis for them to be annoyed, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very murky issue, that one, isn't it? I, yeah. I, I don't. Uh, interestingly, it took a little while for that story to come out. That was before the wedding, and it didn't come out till about November of that year. So some months. Mm. Yeah. And I think it got, got out through a pretty circuitous route. I don't know who told the Telegraph. It was the Telegraph who first wrote the story, but sure. uh, I don't know who told them. I really don't. And I know Kensington Palace was. Very reluctant to get involved in that story. Yeah. I mean, I questioned them many times about that, and they wouldn't say anything. So, you know, I I don't think it was a palace leak as such. And as for the, you know, the, some recollections may vary aspect, who made who cry.
3: It's definitely difficult, isn't it, when you know that the people can't respond to your, I think that's kind of been an issue of them saying their side of the story, isn't it? Because it's like, well, there's not going to be a response to this apart from recollections, recollections may, may vary.
2: vary. Yeah, I use it on a regular basis, you know. Yeah. I feel
3: like that's an Instagram caption
2: waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. I mean, we could talk about the sort of fallout of the Sussex's departure all day, I think. It's interesting what you say, though, about the fact that the royals don't deal with each other directly as often as they do with the intermediaries. And that is something that probably continues to be a problem occasionally, I suppose. I mean, in most normal families, we're not having to deal with a sort of family business as well. You can just pick up the phone and and have a normal conversation. Do you think it's because of this duty above all approach that there has been in the past? If these
0: people exist... You use them. I remember talking to one former Palisade who said, if you or I are arranging, you know, where you're spending Christmas, which members of the family are spending Christmas with this year, you pick up the phone and talk to them yourself. But if you or I had a private secretary, it would end up being the private secretary does all that. Mm -hmm. that. That's just the way it works if these people exist. When William and Kate had been in Pakistan and the trailer for the ITV documentary about Harry and Meghan in South Africa was about to come out. That was the one when Meghan was quite clearly having a bad time and spoke about it, and it was very shocking. William, I think, came back from Pakistan, and he was quite concerned about his brother, I think. He was wondering what to do about it, and should he go and see him? Someone said to him, just go round there, go round to Frogmore Cottage so he picked up the phone uh, might have been a whatsapp message but you know, I think he did speak to, to Harry and said you want to come around and see him and uh, it was a kind of rare example of you know them speaking to not, they did speak those two actually they did speak and Harry was initially kind of open to this idea but then said to William well who are you going to tell if you come around and William said, well, you know, I've got to tell my private secretary because I've got to change my diary. It's so, not like he needs to know I'm seeing you, but he needs to know I'm not doing this that, and the other. And Harry said, right, well, that case don't come. Because he was so worried that if, once the staff knew... That it would leak. Uh, that it would leak. Oh course. And it was kind of, was kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, now, it could be that Harry was also looking for an excuse to say don't come. I mean, that's certainly what someone suggested that meeting would never have taken place. But, you know, it's still heartbreaking that they couldn't have these moments. Yeah.
2: We've talked a lot about the past. Let's talk about something a bit more current. We've just had William, as Prince of Wales, speaking out very directly on the situation in Israel and Gaza. First of all, what do you make of that? And secondly, is that something that he will have done without significant intervention? How closely do you think that was tailored by his private secretary
0: Okay, I think what you have to remember about William is his hands are shackled twice they're shackled once because as a member of the royal family he wants to be a unifying figure not a divisive figure so anything he says on a contentious subject has to be very carefully neutral and his Hands are also shackled that anything he says publicly or anything even vaguely political has to have the approval of the government. So there's absolutely no way that William would not have had this very carefully scrutinized by Number 10 and by the Foreign Office. It just goes without saying. But he also feels very strongly about it. He did that trip a few years ago to Israel and to the West Bank, and he was very struck by it. He was very moved by it. And there was a rather excitable tabloid front page afterwards that how he was going to make his life work to bring peace to the Middle East or some such nonsense. But there's no doubt that he cares about what's going on there, having met people involved. He's very genuine. And this is the big issue of the day, what's going on in Gaza. So he felt he wanted to say something. But he also knew that it was going to be contentious. He knew that it was going to be controversial. What he said was very carefully written. Mm. It's very neutral. He basically says people should stop killing people. uh, You can't argue with that. And you can't argue with that. But if you parse it very carefully, you can see things which may be a slight critical of Israel. I mean, I thought the plea to get humanitarian assistance in, you know, you could see that as being critical of Israel because they're the ones not allowing enough humanitarian assistance to get in. But on the whole, I think it shouldn't call major offence what he said, Uh, which is not to say that people don't take offence. The interesting question is, so it all gets the approval, the say-so of the government. To what extent was it with the encouragement of the government, Mm. or even as someone who's worked for the royal family suggested to me only yesterday, was it the government's idea? I mean, there was only a thought. A Mm. vaguely conspiratorial thought. The government wants to put pressure on Israel and maybe they thought this was a good way of adding just a little bit more pressure on Israel for William to say all this. I don't think it was the government's idea. I think William feels so strongly about this. I'm sure it was William's idea. But it was kind of a bold idea. And I think it wasn't just with the approval of the government. I think it may even have been with the connivance of the government.
2: Interesting, And, you know, we've heard some talk recently about KP planning to have a new system, a new setup, with the CEO in charge rather than the traditional private secretary. What do you make of that? I've got to say, I'm quite puzzled by this. I
0: don't really understand what they're doing. The CEO, if you look at the job description, seems to be about focusing on long-term strategy. Well, that's what private secretaries have done in the past. They've been about long-term strategy. If you look at the people who work for Charles the characteristics of the private secretary often chimed with where Charles was in his life at the time, focusing on charity or whether it's focusing on him as a global statesman. So, you know, that's part of the private secretary's job. Obviously, it's going to affect who you then recruit as a private secretary because private secretary used to be the top of the pile. Now they're going to be number two of the pile. Mm. So who are you going to get such a high caliber of private secretary in the future. I don't know. The job description was also quite interesting. It talked about the candidate should have low ego, should have humility and should have emotional intelligence. It's all kind of interesting stuff. I oh, mean, wow. and and how many chief executives have ever been recruited where, the, where humility is part of the job description? I mean, chief execs, you don't want humility. You want someone with drive and push who's going to achieve great things. They haven't got one yet. We'll wait and see who they recruit, but it's... Is uh, it you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can't can't
0: possibly comment. I'm I'm not going to provide a running commentary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, those qualities, I'm going to just put it out there. It will definitely be a woman. Interesting.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Interesting. Well, no, no. The the reason my eyebrows raised is because it's interesting that the person who is supposedly, and i do not sure if it's been confirmed or not, who supposedly going to become Kate's private secretary, is a man. I think oh. for the first time, Emily will correct me, she, she's had women it, all the way through hasn't she? She
2: has, and she so, now has Lieutenant Colonel Tom White.
0: Yeah, Royal Marine, nice chap. I met him once when he was a, an equerry to the Great Queen.
2: Val, how can you sum up for us the kind of qualities that make up the ideal royal aid?
0: I think they have to be someone in tune with the modern world, And they have to be in tune with their employer. They have to have the ability to convince their employer of the right course of action without being too much of a Machiavellian type. And they've got to make them laugh. Because laughter is the great secret weapon of the successful courtier. Clive Alderton, who's Charles's private secretary as Prince of Wales and now private secretary as king, has a great talent for being able to diffuse sticky situations, and there often are sticky situations for Charles, by making him and Camilla laugh, and it's a, it's a great technique, and it's part of the successful courtiers' Armoury.
3: Right, I can do all of that, what do I what do? <laughs> what I <plan>? I? <laughs>
2: <laughs> See <nice>. me afterwards. <laughs> oh, Thank you so much for coming on Val, we could talk to you all day Good. there's plenty more I'd love to hear, so you must come back when in due course you have completed your next book which we're very excited to hear more about. Are you missing anything about covering the Royal Beat on a daily basis?
0: I miss the camaraderie of the the Royal Media Pack. It was us against them, and the enemy was the palace.
2: (laughs) Grey suits.
0: Uh, It might have been rivals from other newspapers or other magazines, but they were your friends, and we were a united force against a common enemy. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: love that. Val, will you come back?
0: i would be delighted to.
2: Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much, Val. (laughs) (laughs) That
1: conversation really ran for an hour and a half. I don't know how. It's going to be
2: edited by yeah. the time this goes to air, <laughs> yes. I think we could have quizzed Val all afternoon. I we- know. How.
1: It was juicy. I was loving it. He's got so many stories. Good luck to our producer who has to cut that down. <laughs> <laughs> we really need to get him in another time.
2: We do. I can't wait to hear more about the new book when it comes. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's everything from us today. Thank you so much to all of our guests and to you too for joining us. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime,
3: catch more from Hello with our news and entertainment show, The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple,
0: and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye!